You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 126, The Battle of Princeton. Over the last few weeks, we covered General Washington's raid on Trenton Then, in response, General Cornwallis brought an army of over 5,000 regulars and Hessians down into New Jersey to restore British control. The Continental Army had pulled back to Pennsylvania, but once again returned to Trenton a few days later. The Americans had bloodied Cornwallis' advance on Trenton and slowed the column so that they did not reach the town until a few hours before nightfall. Now, the British and Hessians combined actually had fewer soldiers in the Trenton area than did the Continentals and militia. Cornwallis had about 5,000 men, while Washington commanded nearly 7,000. Washington also had the better defenses. Cornwallis, however, had the best regiments in the army with him, while Washington was relying on relatively untested militia for more than half of his force. Cornwallis also had more artillery. Now, as I said, the Continentals had a good defensive position on Assenpink Creek and had held off several British attempts to take the bridge over the creek on the evening of January 2nd, 1777. Even so, both sides expected that the British would be able to force their way across the creek the next morning and take the battlefield. If they did that, the Continentals had a difficult line of retreat and would have no easy way to get back across the Delaware River if they were in the face of the enemy. This was a huge risk for the Continentals. It gave Cornwallis the chance to capture the entire Continental Army once and for all. General Cornwallis held a council of war with his top generals on the evening of January 2nd. Many of them had urged a night raid to prevent the Continentals from slipping away at night, like they had at the Battle of Long Island and again at Harlem Heights. Cornwallis, however, did not want to launch a night attack on unfamiliar ground without good enemy intelligence. If the enemy gave up their defensive position overnight, then the British could just chase them down in open field. If not, a dawn battle made more sense. Washington also held a council of war. His generals debated whether to stand and fight or slip away. Fighting carried a good chance that the whole army would be captured. Leaving without a fight would make the First Battle of Trenton look like a lucky raid against a Hessian outpost, but would not dissipate the conventional wisdom that the Continentals could never really stand up against the British army. Then the council also considered a third option. The idea for this third option is usually credited to a newly promoted Brigadier General, Arthur St. Clair from Pennsylvania. He proposed to pull out that night, 
but then take a back road to the north around Cornwallis's army and attack his smaller reserve force at Princeton. Such a surprise attack would have a higher chance of success against a smaller and unprepared enemy. It would also mean the Continentals could avoid battle with the main Cornwallis force without looking like they were simply running away. It would also put the army in position to hit Brunswick as well. Now, there's pretty good evidence that Washington was already preparing for this option before the council met. He likely discussed the plan with General St. Clair ahead of time, wanting some other officer to make the initial proposal. After some discussion, the council came to a consensus and Washington approved the plan. Once again, the weather cooperated to an astonishing degree with the Continentals. Witnesses reported the night was much darker than usual, despite there being a partial moon and no clouds. More importantly, the muddy slush that had slowed the British wagons all day disappeared as the temperature dropped suddenly after dark. The roads froze solid, making travel much easier. The Americans kept all their campfires stoked and used picks and shovels to convince the British, only a few hundred yards away, that they were digging entrenchments for the morning battle. Meanwhile, the bulk of the army packed up and quietly marched away. Commanders organized the troops at a whisper and did not tell them where they were going. They only had orders to form up and march away. The quiet movement of so many men down a narrow dirt road took time. Although the movement began before midnight, some troops did not move out until after 2 a.m. Despite the American efforts, British sentries and their officers reported the movements back to headquarters. Cornwallis, however, thought the movements indicated a possible night attack. As a result, the British remained alert, but in camp and on the defensive. For the Americans, the dark night brought problems of its own. As the men marched down a dark road toward an unknown destination, most of them had no idea that other units were doing the same thing. One group of Pennsylvania militia spotted several companies of Continentals at a crossroad and mistook them for Hessians. More than a thousand militiamen panicked and ran away, ending up in Bordentown the next morning. Some soldiers never received word of the move at all. Benjamin Rush had been working with military surgeons to help the wounded that night. When they woke up the next morning, they found the camp almost empty. Assuming the Continentals had retreated to Bordentown in an attempt to get back into Pennsylvania, Rush and his colleagues headed south in an attempt to find them before the British took the camp. The bulk of Washington's army, however, remained on task. The army traveled up a lesser-used road off to the east. Part of the journey required moving through a forest, where tree stumps made passage difficult. Another part required moving through a swamp, which fortunately had frozen sufficiently to make passage possible. For many of the men, this was their second night without sleep. Some reported nodding off while marching. Despite the conditions of the passage and the men, the army traveled about nine miles in five hours, arriving at Quaker Bridge shortly before 7 a.m., about the time first light began to brighten the sky. 
General Washington had hoped to be at Princeton by dawn, but that was still two miles away. Quaker Bridge was not strong enough to handle the wagons and artillery, leading to delays in getting the equipment across the river. As the main army struggled, Washington ordered General Hugh Mercer to move west to the main road used by the British to travel between Princeton and Trenton. Mercer's assignment was to destroy the bridge on that road and set up a defensive line there so that once Cornwallis realized the Americans had left Trenton and were attacking Princeton, he would be delayed in getting his regulars and Hessians back to Princeton. Mercer led a detachment toward the bridge while the main army continued up the road toward Princeton. About a mile from the bridge, however, the Americans discovered a large column of British soldiers crossing the bridge headed south. This turned out to be a reinforcement column led by Colonel Charles Mahoud. Cornwallis had ordered Mahoud to bring his force from Princeton to Trenton for what he thought would be a morning battle in Trenton. When the two armies discovered each other, they immediately formed lines of battle and prepared to fight. Neither knew exactly how large the other force was. Mahoud commanded about 450 men, including eight artillery pieces and some cavalry. Washington deployed a force under General Nathaniel Greene, which, including Mercer's men, totaled about 1,500. But the pace of battle initially favored the British. Greene ordered Mercer to confront the British force. Both sides rushed to take possession of an orchard in the area between the two armies. About 50 British dragoons reached the orchard first, but were pushed back by about 120 Americans. Both sides sent in reinforcements, with two lines forming about 40 yards apart. Both began firing volleys, standing their ground, and taking heavy casualties. The British were outnumbered at this point, but ordered a bayonet charge. The Americans, who largely did not have bayonets, began to fall back. General Mercer attempted to rally the American troops, but got knocked down by a British soldier who demanded his surrender. Rather than surrender, Mercer lunged at the soldier with his sword. The British bayoneted him repeatedly and left him for dead on the field. Second in command, Colonel John Hazlitt, who had fought heroically in multiple battles in New York, took a shot to the head and also died. Some British soldiers mistook General Mercer for Washington and thought they had killed the American leader. In the face of British bayonets and the deaths of their officers, the survivors of Mercer's force began to retreat in disarray. As they fell back, they ran into Colonel Cadwallader's advancing Pennsylvania militia, who had been coming forward to reinforce them. The frightened retreat of Mercer's men caused part of the militia to turn and run as well. But part of the line stood and fought, including an artillery battery that fired on the advancing British. Seeing the American line hold, some of those soldiers who had initially turned around to begin to flee turned back and returned to the lines. About that time, Washington himself arrived on the field of battle. Now, I'll be the first to admit that Washington has some limitations as a strategist, but no one could compete with him as a field officer for bravery and leadership. Washington rallied the line and his men toward the enemy. 
Washington was about 30 paces away from the enemy, still on horseback, leading his army into a charge. One witness reported that the British line fired a volley directly at Washington. The soldier witnessing this event closed his eyes and turned away, thinking Washington would certainly have died on the spot. But when he looked again, Washington remained on his horse, unharmed, still encouraging his men forward. The superior American numbers forced back the British, many of whom were killed or captured. General Sullivan brought another 1,300 soldiers to the field, giving the Americans an overwhelming numerical advantage. Washington, clearly elated with the win, shouted to his men, It is a fine fox chase, my boys. He began to gallop after the fleeing enemy, until his aides stopped him and reminded him that he needed to return to the main army for the attack on Princeton. I think Washington considered this a vindication of the shame he felt when the British soldiers used fox-hunting calls to chase down Americans during the retreat in New York. Some of the British troops fled west and scattered, but Colonel Mahood ordered his artillery and the remainder of his army to move back north to Princeton to aid in the defense of the town. Part of Mahood's remaining force moved to a defensive position at a ravine known as Frog Hollow. There, they hoped to engage with the advancing Americans. Mahood had moved his artillery to support the position, making an American assault more difficult. General Sullivan's force fought a pitched battle along the ravine. The Americans aggressively moved on the British defenses, climbing through the ravine to engage with the enemy. The American numbers made the British position untenable as the Americans attacked them from the center and began to envelop them from both flanks. The British fell back in good order to another defensive breastwork where they continued the fight. Eventually, though, in the face of an overwhelming number, the remaining British force surrendered. The final British stand took place at Nassau Hall a large brick building on the college campus of Princeton University, then called the College of New Jersey. The Americans brought up artillery, commanded by Captain Alexander Hamilton, and fired on the building. The Americans then rushed the building. At that point, the British finally surrendered, rather than continue to fight to the death. The British defense, however, gave time for Colonel Mahood to remove some of the supplies from Princeton and march them out towards Brunswick thus denying them to the enemy. Other than the loss of supplies, Princeton was a great American victory. The British suffered around 150 dead and wounded, with another 300 or so taken prisoner. The Americans lost about 40 killed and another 40 wounded. With the victory at Princeton complete, Washington still needed to contend with General Cornwallis who by this time had realized the Americans had left him at Trenton and were at Princeton. Cornwallis moved his army toward Princeton, only to encounter the Americans at Stony Brook, the spot General Mercer had originally been deployed to, to delay Cornwallis. With the bridge destroyed and an American rear guard preventing an easy crossing, Cornwallis was delayed long enough to let the Americans escape Princeton before the main British army could get there. Washington had little time to decide his next move. One was a possible consideration to move his army on Brunswick. 
There, the army could have captured a large cache of British supplies, including a pay chest with about 70,000 pounds in hard currency. This would have gone a long way toward paying the soldiers and supplying them for some time to come. But the Americans were exhausted. Most had not slept in two nights and had fought two battles over the last two days. And they had also been on repeated marches when not fighting. Raiding Brunswick would have meant Cornwallis's army probably would have caught up with them there and engaged them in a major battle, this time with the British having a numerical advantage. Washington later claimed that with only a few hundred fresh troops, he could have taken Brunswick and added another victory. Instead, though, he moved his army north to Somerset, where his men collapsed for the night. By this time, Cornwallis was more concerned about protecting his supplies at Brunswick than pursuing the Continentals. He led the British army back to Brunswick without considering an attack on Washington at Somerset. Over the next few days, Washington led his army further north through the Watchtongue Mountains to winter quarters in Morristown in northern New Jersey. This was only about 25 miles west of New York City. The position established that Americans were not ready to run from the British and would control most of New Jersey. Although the battles of Trenton and Princeton already get a lot of notoriety, it really is hard to overstate how important they were to the American cause. The week before Christmas, the British had looked invincible. There were calls for General Washington to be replaced and the Continental Army seemed on the verge of dissolution. Less than two weeks later, the American victories gave new hope to the cause for independence. Washington had outgeneraled the best British generals and had secured support for his command, at least for now. The soldiers began to re-enlist, and new recruits enlisted in much greater numbers. Americans who thought the cause was lost took new hope and provided new support. Tories and the British back home realized that victory would not come as quickly and easily as they had hoped. The British, of course, tried to downplay the events as a minor raid on a small outpost and noted that Washington was still afraid to face Cornwallis's army directly. The British, though, realized that they could not pacify large regions with a series of small outposts. The British had to keep their forces concentrated around New York City or face another attack like Trenton. For the British leadership, everyone tried to blame someone else. General Howe mostly blamed the Hessians, even though they had played almost no command role at Assunpink Creek or Princeton. Second-in-command General Clinton blamed Commander General Howe for setting up the outposts and Cornwallis for letting Washington slip away at Assunpink Creek. Lower field officers lost respect for the generals after allowing what they were told were untrained inferior rebels to outmaneuver the British Army. General Howe's initial letters to London attempted to downplay the events as relatively minor. However, in the following weeks, his letters turned increasingly pessimistic as the rebels seemed to gain new momentum from these victories. In a letter to Lord Germain, Howe said, It is with much concern that I am to inform your lordship the unfortunate and untimely defeat at Trenton has thrown us further back than was at first apprehended 
from the great encouragement given to the rebels, I do not now see a prospect of terminating the war but by a general action. Now, some historians have noted these comments were an admission that Howe had not been seeking a general action up until this point. His goal was simply to push back the Continental Army but avoid a bloodbath. This would prove that the British were invincible and that the war would come to an end without great bloodshed. But the American wins at Trenton and Princeton now destroyed that presumption of British invincibility. So Howe was saying the gloves had to come off and that there would have to be some serious fighting in the coming year. The Patriots, of course, played up the victories. On January 13, 1777, Thomas Paine published Chapter 2 of the American Crisis series. I would now like to read Thomas Paine's American Crisis Number 2. But I'm not going to do that to you again. If you want to read it, there is a link on my blog. But essentially, Paine's Crisis Number 2 was an open letter to General Howe, which taunted him about his inability to conquer America. The experiences of the past few weeks showed that, yes, the British Army could occupy a city or two, but could never effectively control the people of America. Payne said, We may be surprised by events we did not expect, and in that interval of recollection, you may gain some temporary advantage. Such was the case a few weeks ago, but we soon ripen again into reason, collect our strength, and while you are preparing for a triumph, we come upon you with a defeat. Military recruiters who were getting laughed out of town a few weeks earlier were now filling their enlistment quotas. The Continental Army rebuilt itself as people regained hope in the ability to resist the British. George Washington, who a few weeks earlier was seen by many as perhaps an amateur in over his head, now became the hero of the continent. Talk of replacing him vanished, at least for the moment. General Horatio Gates, who had bet on Washington failing in his attack and who had rode off to Baltimore to convince Congress to put him in charge, now had to crawl back to Washington and pretend he was supporting him all the time. Amazingly, Washington did not seem to hold it against the weasel, I mean General Gates, and allowed him to continue in his command. Washington, of course, did not simply get credit for being a great general. He actually was becoming a great general. Over the past year, he had learned from his mistakes at Boston and New York. He now appreciated the importance of good intelligence. He was figuring out who his best generals were and how to make best use of them. He was learning more how not to fight the British on their terms, but to surprise and use the strength of his Continentals and militia to defeat the enemy. Crossing the Delaware the first time had been an act of desperation. If it had failed, the whole army probably would have disappeared. The second crossing to Trenton was doubling down on that gamble, and again risking everything to build on that first success. The surprise move on Princeton showed the ability of the Continentals to think on their feet and to adjust strategy based on what they could do. The decision not to go to Brunswick showed a realistic assessment of their limitations and not to push their luck too far. 
finally settling into winter quarters in northern New Jersey near New York City, established that this was not just a hit and run, but an army that was reconquering its territory. Next week, the Americans used the rest of the winter to run a guerrilla war against the British, keeping them on the defensive. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi. Thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. This week, I wanted to take a moment to thank our Robert Morris Circle supporter on Patreon, Tyson France, who runs the online store Liberty & Company. Tyson sells t-shirts, mugs, magnets, and other items related to the American Revolution and the founding of America. I really like his new t-shirt about the Culper spy ring. Tyson also kindly agreed to design logos for our upcoming History Camp Philadelphia, which is going to take place on May 2, 2020. If you want to check out Tyson's store, go to libertyand.co. Don't forget to use the discount code AMREV, that's A-M-R-E-V, at checkout to receive 20% off. There's also a link to the site libertyand.co on my website, amrevpodcast.com. With this week's episode, the Battle of Princeton completes the Continental Army's winter campaign, which revives the Patriot War effort by capturing almost all of New Jersey. Now, next week, I'll get into the continuing vigorous militia activity in the state, but General Washington settles his Continentals in Morristown and focuses primarily on rebuilding an army for the spring campaign season. I mentioned that one of the losses at Princeton was General Hugh Mercer, someone about whom I had not really bothered to provide much detail during his lifetime. His life is a rather fascinating one, So, as he leaves our story, I feel I owe it to his memory to give a brief background, even if it's a little belated, now. General Mercer was a few years older than George Washington, born in Scotland, and survived the famous Battle of Culloden in Scotland, where he had served as an assistant surgeon. The English spent a few months after Culloden hunting down and executing any Scots who had fought in or even supported the rebellion. So Mercer had to live for a few months on the run as a fugitive before he finally got a ship that took him to Pennsylvania. Less than a decade after the Battle of Culloden, Mercer joined up with the British Army to serve on the Braddock campaign against the French. I guess by this time the British either didn't know his former treason or were willing to overlook the matter. 
Colonel Mercer survived another massacre, this time with the British Army at the Battle of Monongahela. It was during this time that he developed a friendship with another young colonial colonel on the campaign named George Washington. Mercer and Washington also both served on the Forbes campaign to capture Fort Duquesne, what we today call Pittsburgh. After the war, Mercer moved to Virginia, where he started a family and ran an apothecary in Fredericksburg. Today, his apothecary shop is a museum. Mercer was an early supporter of the Patriot cause, even before the war began. He served as a member of the local committee of safety, as well as being part of the colonial militia. As Virginia ramped up for war, he raised a regiment, but did not immediately join the Continental Army. His Virginia regulars remained in Virginia. Future Chief Justice John Marshall and future President James Monroe both served as officers under his command. In June 1776, Congress appointed him a brigadier general. He and his army marched north to participate in the New York campaign. Now, Mercer played a key role in the crossing of the Delaware and the battles at Trenton. His sacrifice at Princeton ensured Washington's main army had time to escape north before Cornwallis arrived. I mentioned that he was left for dead on the battlefield on January 3rd. However, he survived the battle severely wounded and was treated by Dr. Benjamin Rush the next day. Mercer finally succumbed to his wounds more than a week later on January 12th. His death is immortalized in Jonathan Trumbull's famous painting, The Death of General Mercer, and I have a copy of that on my blog post for this episode at blog.amrevpodcast.com if you want to take a look at it. Mercer definitely would have played a key role as a military leader in the war had he survived. If you want to read more about Mercer, my book recommendation this week is Second to No Man But the Commander-in-Chief, Hugh Mercer, American Patriot, by Michael Ciceri. This book, which was straight to paperback when it was published in 2018, covers Mercer's life as best it can, given the rather limited record about his life. The book is rather short, at less than 200 pages, and is sometimes criticized for not having enough narrative. Much of the book is lengthy quotes from primary sources, which I particularly find interesting. The author, Michael Ciceri, is a longtime history teacher at several Virginia high schools and community colleges. I think this is his only book. But if you want to read more about Hugh Mercer, Second to No Man But the Commander-in-Chief is a great place to start. My online recommendation this week is another free ebook in the public domain, which is also about General Mercer. It's called The Life of General Hugh Mercer by John Grulick. Now, this book was first published in 1906 and has less than 100 pages about Mercer himself with a lengthy list of genealogical descendants at the end of the book. It's one of the first attempts to write a Mercer biography, and it's a free download at archive.org if you want to check that out. Again, I've added a direct link to the ebook on my website, amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? 
How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.